This is A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. Today we are talking about science fiction. We are talking about fantasy. We're talking about where and when and how those genres overlap, and we're talking about the allegorical power of those stories and what they can teach us. Because we are talking to reference librarian Maggie Waddell, who develops the collection here at Ferndale for that genre of sci-fi and fantasy and where they meet. We also talk about some of the award-winning books that have come out recently in that genre. Uh, Specifically librarians here who are on staff and to give them a chance to talk about the collection that they develop. But then, you know, we also love to hear about how you how you became a librarian. Let's start there, Maggie. I started out working in the elementary school library that my kids went to. Okay, where was this? At Pembroke Elementary in Birmingham. Oh, cool. And from there, we moved to Virginia, and I continued working in their library there at their elementary school. And then I was offered a job as an assistant librarian at a nearby elementary school. And I liked that a lot. It was very meaningful to me because we were dealing with a, a wide variety of cultures uh, 40 different languages in our school. 40? 40. Wow. And I had the opportunity to encourage literacy and encourage kids to continue their education. And part of the reason why I felt that literacy was um, so vital was because you use your, your library skills and your ability to read in researching everything that you buy in life, everything you do in life. Mm -hmm. And so not only is your ability to read important, but also digital literacy in this day and age. Right. And so I had an opportunity to make a difference with that. And at that point I had very few parent volunteers because from so many different cultures, they all had a different interpretation from wherever they were from as to what their contribution to their library, to their community should be. Sure. So I ended up having a group of about 50 kids who came in and did work in the library for me. Wow. Wow. um, All at once or kind of like in waves? They would come in on their lunch hours. They would come in on, you know, when they had free time, they had to have a teacher's permission to participate. It was called the Bookmasters Club. Oh, that's great. And I gave them each a section of the library that they would clean and shelf read and, you know, fill with books that were returned and that kind of thing. And then I would, I would test them on their library skills Mm -hmm. on how they knew if they knew where certain obscure things were in the collection, because typically public libraries and school libraries have the same organization. So if you learn in your school library how to find things and mm-hmm. what's there and and how to get to things, then you will also be successful in a public library as an adult. That's and great. Thereby improve your literacy. <laughs> that is that. I don't, I hope you appreciate how crucial that is because I feel bad because I'm about to, I guess, speak poorly of my uh, elementary school, but I don't feel like that I had that opportunity. We had a library, but I remember it being, I guess, very intuitively laid out. If you wanted to find animals, there'd be sort of a big icon on the shelf that was like animals or, or what have you. And sort of We could find our own way, but it was, it's not like we were getting a peek into how things were organized. That's pretty cool. 
Right. And typically these were, it started out with a group of kids who, for whatever reason, didn't want to go out on the playground. Well, sure. I mean, that was, I was a kind of kid like that. We all were at one time or another. (laughs) And, you know, we were, it was at the beginning of where libraries were starting to shift to being a more collaborative area. Yeah. And so there were seating areas and that kind of thing. And they would just want to come in Mm -hmm. into a safe place. Yeah. And so I found a way to make it also a meaningful place. Oh, that's great. And when I left, you know, and I did a lot of baking for him too. So there was that. (laughs) But um, when I left, I, uh, you know, taking something from uh, searching for Bobby Fisher, I made up a, a certificate, a colorful certificate for them that I awarded them at the end of the year as being part of the Bookmasters Club. Mm hmm. I mean, of course, they would identify it as uh, a welcoming place, a quiet place, just a place that was they could concentrate, maybe work on, maybe read books recreationally, maybe work on their homework. But, you know, that's that's such a nice little sort of chestnut of librarianship is that you also found a way to engage them while while they were there. And it was interesting, too, because um, a few of those kids were also um, Asperger's. Okay, And. So they would have trouble making eye contact with you. Yeah. But they were laser focused on you nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And once you understood that, you could have some really great conversations with them because they pick up things in novels and in plots and that kind of thing that the average person might not pick up. Mm -hmm. So as long as you were, you know, looking, your eyes were averted Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that was a little too intense. Sure. um, You could also connect with those kids as well and, and find out some interesting aspects of a popular novel that you had not picked up on before. It makes me wonder if this experience sort of maybe gave you insights into what librarianship involves, even before you went and got your librarian degree, you know. Well, it certainly motivated me. Yeah, there you go. Because I didn't want it to end there. I wanted to be able to um, continue making an impact. And so from there, it you know, it expanded sort of into a being able to effectively research mm-hmm. and going beyond, you know, uh, Wikipedia, mm-hmm. which at that point was, you know, less of a viable source than it probably is today. I right. think today it's it's probably a little bit more authentic than it was then. Right. But um, from there, it took off into making sure that the sources that were being used were were good viable sources from mm-hmm. a reputable from a reputable source. That became such an issue though with librarians. Huge. In the in the 60s, 70s or 80s, there would be just trusted textbooks. There would be encyclopedias. Right. And uh, a bibliography, no one would really question that if it came from some, you know, respected source like Britannica. But now the internet really shook things up. Well, and historically, history has been written by whoever's in power. Right, that too. And yeah. so that's not always how it really happened mm-hmm. or how mm-hmm. it, it or the most meaningful way that it should be remembered. Right. And I think we're finding that that out more. It's not always what you want to hear. It's not always right. pretty, but it's um, more meaningful in terms of how we go forward. Yeah. And that's the thing about li- libraries is that we can collect so many books that will expand and enlighten upon a certain subject and we can keep getting new books that just uh, are evolving our understanding of a subject, which is so great. And and that's always been really important to me too, is that history not 
be rewritten um, in the most flattering light, right? but in the light that is the most accurate so that we can learn from our mistakes or learn from our successes um, going forward. Yeah. And in that respect, preservation became something that I was interested in. Oh, and yeah. so from school libraries, I then went and built an archive for a trade association in Farmington and learned a lot about preservation Wow! while I was That's doing cool. that. And during that time, I finished my degree. Okay. And I really had a hard time deciding what I wanted to do because, and I should mention too, that uh, in between the archive and the school libraries. I also worked in an academic library Mm -hmm. in Arlington, Virginia in the circulation department Wow! and really enjoyed that because I was dealing with students again, Mm -hmm. but um, at a different level and also uh, working with students, Mm -hmm. student employees. And one of my, one of our favorite things to do was somebody would come up with a, with the title of an obscure article that they were trying to find and download. And we would have a race to see who could find it and (laughs) download it the fastest. And then we would go back and track what, you know, how we did that, what pathway we followed and what was the most effective. So that was, that was a lot of fun and very rewarding because you saw people growing and and building on their careers, their knowledge, their personal life. Yeah. That's such a good exercise Yeah, for, for researching. Yes. And then, yeah, but just preservation has always been as someone who has volunteered, even just here in this, you know, rather modest sized city of Ferndale at their local historical society and what they preserve there as a volunteer there, I became really interested in the idea of preserving things and how important that can be in general. Yeah. And in one of my, one of the classes that I, uh, the one live class, because I did my entire master's over Zoom. Oh, uh, you know, way of the future. Yeah. Yeah. And, and had a very good experience good. with it. You know, good. very, it was very interactive. It yeah. was very robust because you had a chat going at all times. Yeah. So it was probably more interactive than a live classroom. That's cool. And I was going to the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and their technology was, was cutting edge and yeah. they placed a great priority on that. So it, it was a, a wonderful experience. And yeah. I, and I think all educational experiences could be like that on Zoom, but it takes time for people to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what we're seeing right now mm-hmm. is that people are getting better and better at it. Right. And they'll learn how to make it a more robust experience, mm-hmm. but we're not quite there yet. Right. And so people are still a little dissatisfied with it. You learn how to reach out to different populations with different needs. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you can flesh it out. Do I think it's as good an experience as in person? No, I would always go for in person. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a way to make it a a very high quality experience. Yeah, right on. Talking about preservation, the one class that I had that was live Mm -hmm. at the at that point I was living in Fairfax, Virginia, was federal libraries class that was in D.C. And they bust people in for, you know, I think it was three weeks. Okay. And we toured government libraries okay. in D.C. Now, that includes like Smithsonian's. The Library of Congress. Library. Of, oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. You know, there are hundreds. Right. And some of them are one person libraries. Oh, really? For, you know, small institutions. But that was uh, fascinating, too, because through that and through the Smithsonian, I became aware of some of their crowdsourcing projects. Oh, wow. And that's open to anybody that would be interested in participating. And it's in 
a lot of different areas of the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in botany, mm -hmm. there's a botany crowdsourcing project. Now, it may just be something as simple as transcription, mm -hmm. but it, it could also be something you know, where you're, what you're transcribing is fascinating. Sure. I was just um, looking at one of the transcription projects or one of the um, crowdsourcing projects that they have going right now mm -hmm. um, about the Civil War. And it's transcribing the diary from a guy who was in one of the one of the prison camps. Oh, wow. During the Civil War and talking about the conditions and talking about, you know, how many people there were mm -hmm. in this like 16 acre, you know, prison camp. There were right. like 50,000. Yeah. They were crammed in there and the disease and, you know, just that there was no effective way to communicate with sure. your family if sure. you, if you ever did at all. Sure. Also the, any diary from that period just yeah. shows off such a, a rich lexicon, the, 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 and, the narrative voice of the epistolary historical record. Is, and they all had amazing handwriting. Right. Right. <laughs> Also, when we have folks on this podcast, on this library podcast, we like to ask them about their experiences in libraries. Were you visiting libraries often? You moved around a lot, but what are some of your memories of having visited libraries? I was an avid reader because I, I came from a family where that was valued. Yeah. And the first librarian that I remember was in my elementary school, mm -hmm. Mrs. Rose. Mm-hmm. Who took and and we were talking a bunch of us from elementary school were talking about this the other day and we all have the same recollection of her about how she would take the time to find out what interested you know what kinds of interests you had and then guide you in the direction of and then sometimes you you know you ended up talking with your friends about it yeah and that was a, another another thing that happened in the in the years that my kids were in elementary school is that we would have book clubs for them. Oh, that's great. And, you know, very low pressure. Yeah. But whoever was hosting would provide, oh. you know, a snack and, you know, a list of five questions to get the converse conversation started. And you found that way that a lot of, that they expanded their horizons in terms of what genre they were interested in or thought they were interested in because they had a taste of it from somebody else introducing it. Classic pure librarian direction <laughs> and inspiration. What were you into when you were reading? What were your, what your favorite kinds of books to read? Or what, you know, I guess what, what were some of your favorite books of all time? You no, know, classics. I always yeah. went with classics because I figured that there was a reason that they were classics. Oh, we're kindred spirits on that. So it was like my own reader's advisory. <laughs> That's good. I think I'm, I might be the only person on staff who authentically likes Moby Dick. So, oh, yeah. You know. Great, great. Yeah, mm -hmm. but there's a reason, and there, yeah. and now find that the reading that I'm doing now, I, my favorite is probably historical fiction. Oh, cool. As much as I like that, and fantasy is probably my second favorite. Mm -hmm. But I find myself now reading more and more about the Constitution and about amendments and how things have come to be the way they are and why things are interpreted the way they are. Mm -hmm. You know, when there's a Supreme Court decision, I find myself reading it. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's pretty dry stuff. Sure. But I want to understand the logic behind it. Yeah. And and why someone is making a claim that it leans this way or that. Mm -hmm. I want to understand that kind of thing. Contextualizing history. And so I feel like I'm a better American citizen. 
uh, and more informed now than I ever have been. That's good. So I, um, I'm grateful for that. That's quite a dichotomy to be in the midst of a very dry Supreme Court ruling and then where fantasy would offer you complete escapism and no yeah. rules and whatever and flourishes. And that's the most that's the beautiful thing about yeah. fantasy or about sci-fi. Yeah. Is that it's an escape. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. have to make time for that. It's a relief. Right. It's a, a respite, if you will. Right. And something I've always maybe this is the same for you, but what I've always as someone who reads more sci-fi than I do fantasy, but what I appreciate about them as escapism is that if we said that word out loud escapism, it might have the connotation that it is you know, just some people might think escapism and they might think like junk food television where it's just, you know, something you can block out the real world. And But with sci-fi and fantasy, it is written in such a artful language. It's such a sophisticated writing style. It is engaging your brain. It's just talking about, you know, mountains and castles and spaceships. However, it is still very uh, intellectually stimulating and sophisticatedly written. That's what I like about it. And it's grounded in reality. Right, that too. So they take that and they explore different possibilities with it. Mm-hmm. And I find the the different possibilities and the creativity in coming up with those different possibilities to be a lot of fun. Right. And more than that, I think it's I think it's especially appealing when they'll take like a social a social issue sure and and deal with it that was you know this isn't you know a library issue but that was always one of my favorite things about star trek right and we're currently rewatching those with my my daughter who's a freshman in college uh-huh. and going back through some of the things that they covered mm-hmm. in the star trek episodes and mm-hmm. and i still see that in some of the sci-fi and fantasy they they take a, a political or a social issue and explore where it could go or what if yeah some classics, I guess, by now that are sort of that sort of continued that tradition throughout the 70s and 80s would be something like Ursula K. Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness. I hope I'm getting that title right. Yeah. And uh, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sour. So those, you know, two landmark books. But um, but yeah, it, it must have been it must be pretty fun to also do collection development and, and tackle that section for here in the Ferndale Library. Well, and one of the first things that I did with that, because this was not something that I was, you know, even though I had read a fair amount of sci-fi and fantasy, that wasn't it, in terms of collection development, it wasn't something that I was that familiar with. Okay. And so one of the first things I did was I, you know, I found, you know, 15, 20 different lists of what people considered to be the best sci-fi or you know, must read sci-fi books and, you know, like the Ray Bradbury stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, but looking back through all of those, Mm -hmm. they all follow that. Yeah. And then they, and then they spice it up with something like time travel or a parallel universe. Yes. Or, or some sort of dystopic element, right? right? right. Alternate history. Right. You know, something like that. So I, I always think that that's interesting how it might have been. Yeah. And one of my favorite books, in fact, and I just put a copy in, even though it's not a new book, was Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. I'm familiar with the title, but I've never read it. It's about a woman in New York who um, is low income and a minority who um, sustains a head injury and starts time traveling into uh, three other universes. Wow. And it's... It's something that always stuck with me because it, you know, it's a possibility of what could be. Right. And some of it you like and some of it you don't like. Right. 
We are also prepared to talk about something really important in the fantasy and sci-fi world, and that is you are keeping on your radar these awards that are handed out each year. Can you tell us a bit about, we have two awards that we like to follow, right? There's the, right. the Hugo Awards mm -hmm. and the Nebula Awards. Right. The Hugo Awards was first presented in 1953, mm -hmm. and it's presented annually. And it's considered the most prestigious award. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's according to the Hugo Awards. <laughs> and it's um, voted on by members of the World Science Fiction Convention. And there are three main types of Hugo Awards. There's an individual work, like a single book sure. or film. People, like the best professional artist. And serial publications, like the best fanzine. I think that's cool that they hand that out. Yes. Yeah. And... This year, the um, best novel was A Memory Called Empire by R.K.D. Martin. Okay. And it's... This is a, like a... It's kind of like a murder mystery. Yeah. But it's in a dystopian universe. Right. And and there's some politics involved. Right. But it's... And that, that's an interesting example of what can fit into sci-fi. And that's sort of ex what this list, which we'll, we can share in the show notes of this podcast, is that... You know, you say people might say sci-fi and they might just think Star Trek. They might think that it needs to require space and spaceships. Right. That's not always the case. Well, and a lot depends on the individual library's definition sure. of what that collection should include. Mm -hmm. You know, what Ferndale's um, collection description would include mm -hmm. is not necessarily what somebody else's collection description should include. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of gray area in between. Yeah. You know, um, sci-fi... When you're talking about sci-fi, you know, there's hard sci-fi, which is based on scientific fact. There's soft sci-fi, which is not scientifically accurate or inspired by something like psychology or anthropology or sociology. Mm -hmm. And looking at the different types of subgenres, you know, it's alien invasion, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. colonization, cyberpunk. Oh, yes. Uh, that's uh, William Gibson stuff. Mm -hmm. And is that something that you find interesting? Yeah. So, yeah, cyberpunk would also be. So that is that's like William Gibson's neuromancer or there's, right. you know, I you could almost say that that Philip K. Dick gets into cyberpunk, yes. at least when you think of, you know, Blade Runner and uh, do androids dream of electric sheep, you know, stuff yes. like that. And again, it, it gets a little great. Right. Is it cyberpunk or is right. it? You know, uh, uh, there are mutant um, subgenre. Subgenre. Mm -hmm. So it, there's a lot that goes that goes into it, mm -hmm. and a lot of nuances. And then you have the fantasy sci-fi side of it. Right. And here at this library, we will will put something like the Game of Thrones series uh, into our 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 sci-fi slash fantasy sort of area, and then other things like. Uh, Modesit is someone else, I think, the, who sort of writes in sort of a medieval fantasy sort of like, you know, right. we do have these sort of books that that involve knights and horses and swords and what have you. Well, that and, don't. Yeah, that don't exactly fall into right. one category. Right. That kind of incorporate maybe two or three. And then, you know, usually we go by who Baker and Taylor mm -hmm. decides to slot them as. Yeah. Oh, and then then there's someone like Robert Jordan, who I've never read, but he has the Wheel of Time series, which was massively popular throughout the 70s and 80s and still is and that's something that's going to get adapted into a show soon and that's another thing that's cool about your section maggie is that so many of the you know big pro big production shows that we see are usually based on something that's probably a sci-fi or fantasy novel whether it's uh whatever it was game of thrones or there's uh 
uh, Outlander, you know, things like that. True. Yeah. And and The Witcher is the, the oh, really yes. popular one right now. Yes. Yeah. And you and you were able to you watched the show. Did you read the source material? I am. Okay. I, and in fact, I, I prefer to listen to that on audio. That's cool. And so I've been mm-hmm. listening to those on audiobook, which mm-hmm. we also have available through, I think it's through Hoopla. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these are available through Hoopla, through Overdrive. Yeah. If you want to download them onto your Kindle, you can do that. You're not limited to just having a, a hard copy book. Mm-hmm. And I think what I'm seeing more and more is that people have a little bit of everything going. Yeah. You know, for depending on where you are and what will plug in at that moment. Yeah. You know, so you don't have to carry around a big heavy book. Right. I know a lot of people when they travel, they used to come in and ask for like a paperback book because it was lighter sure. weight. But now you don't even have to do that. I know. You can download it onto your phone or onto your Kindle from wherever you are. Sure, something that weighs not even 6 pounds will hold 6 novels. Yeah. Which is great. It is great. And then Maggie has this great list of Hugo Awards and Nebula Award Ah, winners. Yes. And uh, Nebula is also sci-fi. It's just sort of like a different um, association that uh, I guess it looks like it was founded by the Science Fiction Writers of America. Yes. In 1965. Yeah. and their winner for this year was a book called Song for a New Day. So the Nebula Awards and the Hugo Awards are the two big noteworthy sci-fi award organizations. Mm-hmm. And um, A Song for the Day is by Sarah Pinsker. And it's about a global pandemic. That Timely. Make, yes. That makes public gatherings illegal and concerts impossible, except for those that are willing to break the law for the love of music. Wow. And, How timely. Right. And and don't can't we all relate to that? <laughs> right. And it's for one chance at human connection. Oh boy. Yes. Put oh. me in a crowd. Too real. That is too <laughs> real, Maggie. <laughs> As a music fan, I especially appreciate that. But oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to put that one on on my to be read list for sure. And and sometimes that's also, let's see, I guess we only have that one in hard copy right now. Mm-hmm. But um, you also see a lot of some crossover between mm-hmm. the Hugos and the um, and the Nebula Awards. Yeah. So another one that the Nebula Awards uh, recognized that was not in the Hugo Awards was Gods of Shade and Shadow. Okay. And this is a this is more maybe fantasy. Sure. If you think of it that way, the, and it's about the Mayan god of death that sends a young woman on a harrowing, life changing journey in this dark, one of a kind fairy tale, inspired by a Mexican folklore. So yeah, there you go. Well, that's a another cool thing about calling it the Nebula Awards, though, because it can remain nebulous. So in terms of what it's yeah, and I love too that they're drawing from from something that was part of Mexican culture, right? Historically, right, right, and fleshing it out. Yeah, the uh, I guess it's it's allegorical in terms of what certain sci-fi writers are able to do with their stories, and so. And that's the that's the cool thing is that they can bring subject matter that if it was maybe given to you in a nonfiction book in just sort of a straightforward 300 page sort of research report, it it might not hook everybody, but you can actually enlighten people about some of those points of history. But the I guess sort of the the sci fi fantasy sheen is over it. It's a new way to make people listen. Right, right. Well, Maggie, it's been a pleasure to have you on our podcast. We appreciate everything you're doing for the sci-fi and fantasy collection here at the library. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, we will have this list on our show notes and links to find certain titles in the catalog, including what is in print and what is digital. Thanks again, Maggie. Thank you so much. Thank you.
And that was our chat with Maggie Waddell, reference librarian and the curator of our collection of books that fall into the genre of sci-fi and fantasy. So whether it is a mystical land with castles or whether it is beyond the stars in a spaceship, she is collecting a great batch of books every week new books for you to check out from the Ferndale Library. We appreciate Maggie joining us to tell us some stories about her life and librarianship and what librarians have meant to her. This is the Ferndale Library Podcast. I am Jeff Milo, the host, and we produce it right here in-house at the Ferndale Library. If you want to support this library, you can go to ferndalefriends.org or you can just tell a friend. We thank you for listening. (laughs) 